Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're going to be talking about the carbon footprint of a bottle of wine. And we were doing some research to figure out who to talk to. And Jason Haas at Tabas Creek referred us to the IWCA, which is the International Wineries for Climate Action. And today we're going to be talking with Josep Maria Rebas, who's the Family Torres Climate Change Director, and Julian Drouveau, who is the Vice President of Sustainability at Jackson Family Wines, who are both founding board members of IWCA. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Could you give us a brief background of yourself and how Familia Torres became one of the founding members of IWCA? Yeah, sure. I'm an energy engineer. I studied in both Barcelona and Sweden and a master's in sustainability energy systems. And I've worked for Familia Torres for more than almost five years now as a climate change director. Familia Torres, it's a family-owned winery with more than 150 years of history. And therefore, it is the fifth generation who is running now the company. But the fourth generation is still on the company, and he is our president, Miguel Torres. He's the one in charge of the climate change department. So we are reporting directly to him. This all started in 2008 when he watched The Inconvenient Truth, the movie from Al Gore, and he realized we had to do something. And that's why he launched the Torres and Earth Strategy very much focused on mitigating climate change. And Julian, can you give us a little bit about your background and your role at Jackson Family Wines? Sure. I am the Vice President of Sustainability at Jackson Family Wines. And Jackson Family Wines, for those uh, who don't know, is a family-owned and operated company based in Northern California with vineyards and wineries that span the north and the central coast of California, as well as Oregon, some properties internationally as well. We're probably best known for our Kendall Jackson and our La Crema wines. But we have other wines in our portfolio, ranging from Stone Street to Verite to Cardinal. It's a pretty amazing portfolio. And similar to Familia Torres, we are family-owned, albeit a much younger company. We are now in our second generation of leadership. And climate change is something that this family feels very passionate about, environmental issues in particular. We came together with the Torres family in about 2008. Mr. Torres's niece was an intern for our company here in California. And she said, you guys are thinking about sustainability and climate very much like Familia Torres is. And so she connected the dots for us. Joseph and I started talking and Katie Jackson, my boss, started speaking more in depth with Mr. Torres. And we ultimately recognized that we needed to start the development of an organization that was really focused and that had a laser focus on measuring greenhouse gas emissions first and foremost, and doing it in a way that was based on the science, and then figuring out how we could aggregate our voices and bring the industry together for collective action on climate. So when was the IWCA founded by Torres and Jackson? It was founded in 2019. We had a meeting in Barcelona, taking advantage of a trip that the Jackson family had to Europe. But the truth is that we started a little bit earlier. We have been working with Julian and his team by distance, phone calls, Skype at the beginning, more recently with Teams, but it's been hard work working on distance. And it was in 2019 when it started formally. So it sounds like it took over a decade from you working together to launching this new program. That's quite an effort. 
The thing is, Mr. Torres, he already tried to start something similar in the early 2010 or so in Spain. He wanted to gather all the Spanish wineries to tackle climate change, but it didn't work out. It didn't work because there was not enough commitment. Probably the wineries were more worried about the economic crisis from 2008 rather than to reducing emissions. And he was a bit disappointed. So several years later, 2018, 2019, we realized that we had found the right partner and that the approach was the right one. And to create an, an association which was not nationwide, but international. And given the fact that climate change is a global threat and a global problem, it makes sense to create an international association that not only gathers all wineries together under the same purpose, but tries to standardize the emissions inventories, the emissions way of measuring. And that's really important for future collaboration. And in order to communicate correctly the performance and the achievements of the wine sector worldwide. This is really an interesting topic for me because this was my life prior to wine was clean energy and this whole greenhouse gas emission space. And in that, wine isn't really the first industry that people think about when they think about climate change because it's mostly the fuels, the energy production. Agriculture, yes, but that's mostly meat-based products that release a lot of emissions. Could you give us some context around how big the wine industry's impact is on global greenhouse gas emissions? From a global perspective, I think it's pretty safe to say that the wine industry's global impact on emissions is pretty negligible. We are certainly not in the hot button category of driving emissions globally. That being said, we live within the context of agriculture and agriculture is kind of an area of concern from an emission standpoint, but it also represents an emerging area of opportunity. And I think Wine occupies a really unique role within agriculture where we have an incredibly passionate set of consumers. Wine elicits a response amongst consumers that say strawberries or lettuce just doesn't. And we also are able to kind of communicate directly with our customers and our consumers. There's this level of science and alchemy that exists in the winemaking pursuit. And as such, I think we have an incredible opportunity to represent agriculture more broadly in our efforts on climate action. And so we think that this is a really important movement from the sense that, A, you know, it's important to underscore for any business of any size the need to measure your emissions so that you can really start to prioritize your actions, your decarbonization actions, and you can focus on the areas that wherein you as an organization or you as an industry have the biggest footprint. And then also just the importance of we have this opportunity within wine where we can lead agriculture on advancing climate action and nature-based climate solutions as well. I think we've been seeing in recent years that climate change has actually had a big impact on the wine industry itself. Maybe not the wine industry having a lot of emissions, but getting impacted tremendously by climate change. Joseph, have you seen a lot of that at Familia Torres? I would firstly like to add something on the previous question regarding the fact that we can very humbly become a reference for other sectors, not just for the agriculture, but even other sectors, being probably one of the first associations that are worldwide focused on emission reduction. And probably the proof of that is that we are the first agriculture 
related association to be part of the Race to Zero initiative, the United Nations initiative. That's good to mention. It can serve as an example for others. And also the fact that even though the wine sector is very small and its emissions are negligible, we are also accounting for the emissions somehow of our providers. And by doing so, our providers, they also measure their emissions and therefore it's easier for them to reduce them. So it's like a chain reaction that if we are all measuring scope three emissions, the emissions for outside of our control, we are helping the entire system to measure and therefore more easily reduce the emissions. No, sorry about the question you were mentioning about the impact of climate change. It's different depending on the country where you are at. We have wineries in the north side of Spain, Catalonia, but also in Rioja, Rivera, in Rias Baixas, in Galicia, also in Chile, and a little one in California, Marimar State. We find the consequences and the threats of climate change in, in all of them. We are feeling everywhere. It's the same for all the wine sector, I believe. There might be also opportunities for some regions. I'm thinking probably in South England, where maybe now it's possible to grow vine because of the weather. But the threats and the impacts, the consequences that we are feeling, firstly, is the advancement of ripening on the grapes that brings a more faster sugar content to a higher degree. This results in a higher alcoholic degree of wine if you don't know how to cope with it. So we need to adapt different viticulture techniques in order to avoid this. And also the fact global warming is increasing the inertia of climate systems. This results in stronger weather and extreme weather phenomena, like very, very long drought in Spain. It's happening usually. Floodings. So probably after two years of drought, then we have one year that it's raining three times more than the normal average. We are also suffering from hail, late hail, when, when the grapes, they have already started to flourish. Hydric stress. And if we think of California, well, Julian is going to explain it better, but all the wildfires that are happening, that some of them, they are not just because of climate change, right? But they are enhanced because of the trough and climate change. So we are feeling it as well. Wow, it's a lot of impacts. What about for you at Jackson, Julian? Just echoing a lot of what Joseph said, we talk a lot about grapes as the canary in the coal mine from a climate standpoint. Grape vines themselves are pretty hardy, pretty resilient. But grapes, as they get closer to ripening, they are very, very sensitive to these changes. Late season heat spikes, wildfires, drought, all of these things are really, you know, I think they're making it harder to farm, but they've also really crystallized the importance of immediate action, right? We're seeing this stuff on a regular basis. It really has driven the need for immediate, direct, and collaborative action. And I think that's where, you know, when we came together, Jackson Family and Familia Torres, we recognize that as two medium-sized family-owned wine companies that punch above our weight class in terms of our influence on the industry, we needed to have an even bigger influence. And that's what led to the creation of IWC. So to ground us in the discussion, it'd be helpful to understand how does one go about calculating a carbon footprint for a bottle of wine? Is there even an assumed average greenhouse gas emissions? And when a consumer goes to buy a bottle of wine, off the shelf that they know like this bottle contributed X to the environment. And I'm curious on, you know, I know IWCA has worked on understanding the holistic end-to-end carbon impact for the wine industry, but how does one go about making that calculation? What are some of the factors that are involved in breaking down what it means on a buy-bottle basis? Maybe Julian, you could start with this. Sure. What we started doing, this is back in 2018 when we connected we ultimately compared our greenhouse gas emissions inventories, and we recognized that both Jackson Family and Familia Torres were using the same framework. 
which in this case is the World Resources Institute's GHG protocol. And we were using the same process to approach it. So the, the ISO 14064 inventory management process, basically. So what that says is we use the same set of metrics and we also use the same, essentially, layout for doing our inventory. So we could compare and contrast. As has been mentioned, we looked at scope one and scope two and scope three emissions. So recognizing that there are a whole host of impacts that we needed to be factoring in. So some of the things in scope one, for example, that are driving the emissions for the wine industry, things like on-site fuel use, soil emissions, waste generation, electricity usage, things like that are really kind of driving our scopes one and two are direct emissions. And then on the scope three, the supply chain emissions that Joseph mentioned, packaging and transportation tend to be the two primary drivers, but we also are including things like other purchased products, grapes, barrels, wine, offsite waste, post-consumption, business travel, things like that. And so we created this standard for the industry to follow that essentially said, look, if you're going to do a greenhouse gas emissions inventory as a wine company, here are the things that are of materiality. Basically, we use the GHG protocol for that, which essentially says that you need to factor in at least 95% of your scopes one and two emissions and at least 80% of your scope three emissions. So by process of elimination and process of comparison, we've kind of come to this guidance now for the industry that all wineries can use. So since you're using an inventory system, I'm curious, my assumption is that most of Jackson Valley wines are consumed domestically. So do you have an average across Jackson Family wines? Like what is the average cost in terms of greenhouse gases for a bottle at Jackson Family wines? Yes, I'm looking at it right now. And the beauty of it is we have it for not just Jackson Family Wines, but for all of the IWCA members. Oh, okay. So it's transparent to everybody. Correct. We don't have it yet, but it's going to be coming out in mid-October. We're going to be publishing our first inaugural IWCA member report that compiles all of this information. But to break it here, because we're all about breaking news, right? The average emissions intensity in terms of kilograms of CO2 equivalent per liter of wine produced for IWCA members is 1.61. And so ultimately, it varies broadly depending on the member. Obviously, larger wineries are more efficient by nature. Smaller wineries are less efficient because there's a smaller denominator. But I think the importance of looking at this number is that it provides a baseline and it helps wineries then understand, well, if I'm a certain size winery, then where are other wineries in my class, as it were? And what are the things that we can do to address those issues? So Julian, could you give us a range? What's the range for size of winery you mentioned? Maybe is it very different by country or by exported or domestically consumed wine? The range is our smallest, I think is 0.75 and our largest is just over 10. And again, that range is the smaller wine companies have those higher footprints and the larger ones tend to have the smaller ones. And Joseph, for Familia Torres Wines, do you break down your calculations? I mean, obviously you break down your calculations in a similar way, but in terms of domestic consumption versus export markets, I'm assuming there's a substantial impact when you're exporting the wines. Yeah. The question is, if we somehow defer the production that goes to overseas or all the countries and the national one, it's already integrated in the carbon footprint, in the general carbon footprint. And the only difference could be the logistics the shipping, which in our case is about 15% of the entire carbon footprint. We export a lot, but mainly we export to neighborhood countries. And the rest is obviously in Spain with a great percentage in Catalonia. Obviously, there is 
an extra carbon footprint from these longer range travels that the bottle of wine is doing. And so we are trying to address that by different initiatives, like trying to use the railroad as much as possible, although in Spain it's a bit difficult. That's an old story coming from the Franco dictatorship when we Spanish very smartly set a different white weight of the rail. So we don't have the same measures than the rest of Europe. But if we forget about that, we are also now starting to ship in bulk for some monopolies that they are very much appreciating that and to bottle on site on the country. By every bulk container, we are avoiding three more containers. One is equivalent to four containers. Let's say one bulk container is equivalent to four bottle container. And working with our partners, with our providers, to try to reduce the carbon footprint. But obviously, we're a producing country and we need to export all these products. Yeah, for sure. In the end of the day, you can only make things better if your business is in a good spot, right? So Julian had previously mentioned Scope 1, 2, and 3. And I'm curious, Joseph, maybe you could give us a breakdown for people who aren't familiar with Scope 1, 2, and 3. What is in each of those scopes numbers so we can understand and then we can understand their impact to the overall footprint? Sure. It's very important to underline that we need to take into account all scopes and from the vineyard until the final disposal of the bottle. It's the only way to know the actual impact of our activity. We need to account for everything we are somehow responsible of. Well, technically, this is called scopes one, two, and three. Scope one is direct emissions. is the emissions where you have the most control when we are burning fuel on our vehicles from the company, when we are burning natural gas in our boiler or diesel in the generator. There can be also more tricky sources of these emissions like refrigerant agents for refrigeration. Sometimes either you use natural refrigerants like ammonia or you're using chemical refrigerants like R134 and so on. So when there are some leakage of these refrigerants, this is going directly to the atmosphere and it has a high potential of global warming. So this has to be accounted for. We are also using CO2 on the, for inertization purposes in order to avoid oxidation. So this is also taken into account in scope one, for instance. Then scope two, these are the indirect emissions coming from the purchase of electricity. When we switch our machinery to the electricity grid, we are not emitting emissions. But indirectly, in order to this electricity to be produced, well, there is a power plant behind that has some emissions embedded. So it really depends on the electricity mix of every country. Probably California, the carbon footprint of the electricity mix is low. Spain is quite low as well, but in some other countries might be higher. So that's important to take into account. And then finally, scope three, these are the indirect emissions that are the farthest from our control the emissions from the goods and services that we purchase. So like all the raw material we might produce, we might purchase, or the packaging material, all the logistic services, if we outsource any other service, or even the waste disposal, what we are doing finally with this bottle of wine. We are either littering it, throwing it to the bin, or recycling it. So we have to take into account the entire life cycle of the bottle. Scope 3, all the emissions that are somehow far from our control, although we are responsible of them as well. And we create the demand of them. Got it. In terms of scope one, to oversimplify it, I'm going to be thinking everything from viticulture, vinification, everything that you're in direct control of at the winery. And that goes everything from 
you said the tractors, but also the CO2 that you're emitting and fertilizers. And roughly, how big is scope one in the average bottle of wine? Because that's the one that you have the most control of. Like what percentage of the things that you actually control at a very core basis are actually drive towards your footprint? I would say, well, scope one and two, obviously, they are the ones where you have the most control. Scope one, you can stop burning fossil fuels. Scope two, you can switch to a different electricity grid, maybe, or you can just install solar panels. Most of the IWCA wineries, they have solar panels installed. That's one of the requirements to become gold member within IWCA because it's a way to show your commitment. If you invest in renewable energy, it means that you want to make one step farther. And all IWCA members, they, they have these renewable energies set up. And regarding scope three, although these are somehow far from our control, you can change your provider. And if you have one bottle coming from a country where it has a higher carbon footprint, you can change the provider and take one with a smaller one. But you need to know what is the carbon footprint of your products you are purchasing. That's a bit tricky. In round numbers, though, it's about 20 to 25% of an organization of a wine company's carbon footprint is scopes one and two. 75 to 80% is scope three is what we're seeing. So that underscores the importance, first and foremost, of including scope three. We feel very strongly at IWCA that you can't exclude scope three and be serious about climate action because it represents such a big piece and such a critical opportunity for us to engage with the industry at large. Well, it also helps you insert your influence on which vendors you're using and what their standards are, which is great. So you mentioned a lot of renewable energy installation. Just a geeky side question around that, given that... I like that space or I was in it for a long time. So you have a lot of solar panels. Do you then also have to install energy storage, batteries, or are you still using the grid as a backup? There's no wineries that are completely off the grid and it's just solar production or how are you addressing that? I would say most of the wineries, they are not off grid, especially because the winery activity is seasonal. We don't have like a constant consumption, like a baseload of consumption. We have a high peak during the harvest season, and it would not make sense to have such a big dimension of solar panels for the entire year. So most of them, they are switched to the grid as a, as a backup. And then, well, we install solar panels, thermal solar panels, biomass to take advantage of the running waste. And sometimes you can make use of storage systems like ice and water storage in order to be used during the daylight and to create this ice during the night. That's happening. And for those who are more lucky, they can have lithium batteries, maybe. That's a bit more expensive. Yeah, we harvest, which, you know, let's call it a two and a half months out of the year. In round numbers, harvest generally accounts for about 50% of a winery's annual consumption. So you see this huge spike and you're not going to really be able to size a microgrid appropriately to Joseph's point. Interesting. So we talked about scope one and scope two. Scope three, obviously, to be serious about making a dent for the wine industry, we have to address scope three. Looking at scope three, one of the things I was surprised by was to see that purchased grapes or purchased wine was in that category. I would have automatically have put that into scope one, but I guess it's because it's not in your direct control, which knocks it out of scope three. And then there you're factoring in not only how they produce the wine, but also the transport to get it to you, right? So it's a holistic number that you're getting from the partner. Exactly. And in terms of the actual products, because a lot of people talk about packaging, like that seems like to be a big talking point for a lot of people, like especially in California, we get these crazy heavy bottles. And I'm curious in terms of packaging, is that bottle itself the primary thing that is weighing it down? And I'm curious also on thoughts on 
other components like closure and how that impacts your calculations? For us at Jackson Family Wines, packaging as a category represents about 25% of our total footprint. And within that, glass is the primary driver. Glass is about 20% of our total footprint. And the reason for that is glass, it's produced by melting sand at 3000 degrees Fahrenheit using fossil fuel powered furnaces. So that's a very emissions intensive process. And when we first recognized that, and this speaks to the importance of doing the inventory, right? So you know where your impact areas are. It kind of blew me away. I had always looked at glass packaging as this infinitely recyclable, perfect container for wine, which it is. And so when we recognized the size of the carbon footprint associated with that activity, we realized that this was kind of, for us, one of our first big opportunities to address it. And there are some things that you can do on the intermediate side, kind of immediate levers that you can pull. The first is obviously to reduce the weight of your bottles. So I think it presented a great opportunity for us. And we started looking at this back in about 2015 to question some of the assumptions. We as wine marketers have always kind of long held that consumers want heavier bottles because they send the quality cue. And if you look back in history, the only reason they think that is because that's what we've told them. And so it presented a really interesting opportunity for us to say, whoa, whoa, let's take a step back and let's question this assumption. So starting in 2015, we actually started pulling weight out of our bottles and we were able to reduce emissions pretty significantly around the neighborhood of three to 4% by lightweighting all of our Kendall Jackson and La Crema bottles. And we also saved a significant amount of money as a result of buying less glass. And then the bigger opportunity down the road as we really start to engage with the supply chain partners is A, how do we get more recycled content into the glass? Because recycled glass has a lower carbon footprint. And then the big win is how do we decarbonize the glass production process? And there's a great initiative that's happening in Europe right now that's something like 20 different glass manufacturers that have come together under the banner of what they're calling the furnace for the future, where they're essentially creating a process by which they can use renewable energy to power their furnaces and decarbonize that process. And that's happening in Germany, where there's a lot of renewables on the grid. So the capacity is high. But what's great, I think, about that initiative is that it demonstrates in a similar way that we've created IWCA. The glass folks have come together as a manufacturing group to say, how do we advance this technology? How do we open source it? And how do we decarbonize it as quickly as possible? So obviously, if you reduce from your bigger SKUs, if you reduce the glass footprint, obviously you're saving money, better for the environment. That's a win on multiple fronts. But that marketing component where we as an industry have signaled to consumers that a heavier bottle is a better quality wine, essentially, are you making the same efforts on the luxury bottles of wine, the $100 bottles of wine? And how do you change that perception? Because it's something that basically we initiated. How do we walk back from that and not trigger that we're lowering the quality? How do you guys address that as wineries? Like to say, hey, this is still a $100 wine or 100 euro wine. Just because the bottle's lighter, it doesn't matter. I think it's one of the potential initiatives of IWCA, because if it's just one winery or two who is saying that light bottles are cool, no one is going to take it seriously. But if it's an entire group from wineries worldwide that say, hey folks, let's think about it. What's the added value of having a heavy bottle? And there is not. So this message can get faster and more effectively to the final consumer. Also, people from the wine sector, people that give punctuation to wine, or bloggers from the wine sector, they are starting to weight the bottles before tasting and giving an opinion on them. So it's something that more and more people is talking about. In our case, we started to reduce the bottling weight a long time ago, and more than 75% of our bottles are already low weight, which is around 400 grams. 
sometimes you cannot go lower because in that case, it can put in danger the bottling line. And if you have a bottle that is broken on the line, then you have to throw the entire set of bottles and it can broke also on the consumer side. So there is a limit for that. Also regarding the recyclability of glass bottles, obviously it is extremely high. It's very easy to recyclable and the rates are quite high. In our case in Spain, and I believe it's the same in the main countries that are wine producers, is that we export some part of these bottles and they don't come back. So we always have the need to replace the lack of glass with new glass. And therefore, there is a limit for the recyclability of glass bottles, which is around 80%. So we're pushing the glass providers for them to switch and stop producing manufacturing natural gas furnaces and go for electric. And what Julian was saying is true. Normally, that's a project that should see the light in 2023. And it might be the future for this sector. Otherwise, one of the alternatives that we are trying to push forward and that maybe IWCA can have something to say about it is to reutilize bottles. I like one comparison I heard once that when you go to a restaurant, you eat your dish and you don't throw it to the bin, the dish. You just wash it and, and reuse it. <laughs> so why not doing the same with a bottle of glass? And sometimes it's even nicer than what we can find in a restaurant. It doesn't make sense to just destroy it and create a new one. So maybe reutilizing for a certain range or for a certain space in the wine sector could be a good solution to reduce emissions if we find the right way. But this has to be collaborative. It cannot be one single winery. It has to be a junction of several. Yeah, I'd imagine the infrastructure to actually bring the bottles back to get them clean properly is a big component of that. I am curious, Joseph, on closure. We've interviewed people from Amarim and they have done studies where they are saying that a natural cork offsets the carbon emissions of a bottle of wine. I'm curious on what you think of that. I mean, obviously, there's always room to gain to be even more environmentally friendly. But I'm curious, is that something that you guys consider in terms of a core closure, what that product and its cost as well? And how do you factor that in? Is that something that IWC weighs in on? I would say it's not an urgent matter for IWCA right now because closures account for a very small part of the carbon footprint. However, I would say we need to simplify that cork is a great material that behind it, there is like an ecosystem of the cork trees and all the biodiversity around and so on. It's an organic material. However, we don't recycle it. We don't reuse it. We just throw it to the bin. So there is a lot of room for improvement, I believe. Probably one day we're going to have to handle this from IWCA and see what are the opinions of all members and get Amorim also involved as well. Morim and other cork producers. That's an interesting topic. So getting back a little to the IWCA, what is the mission and the purpose of the IWCA? Sure. I mean, I think at a high level, it's to decarbonize the wine industry as quickly as possible. And it's to really create a pathway for member wineries to do that. We have some pretty stringent membership requirements that are associated for any winery that wants to join. We have three different membership classes for IWCA. We have a gold member class, we have a silver member class, and then we have kind of a subcategory of applicant members, which are wineries that are committed to joining, but haven't yet taken the step, some of the immediate steps of doing it. So I'll read off the high-level membership requirements. We have four, essentially. So the first is you have to commit to becoming net zero by 2050 across your scopes one through three emissions. And you have to commit to kind of meeting intermediate reduction targets by 2030, which is in alignment with the United Nations Race to Zero campaign that, that Joseph mentioned. The idea here is we're committing to net zero, but it's not enough to just say, oh, by 2050, we're going to get there. You actually have to start taking immediate action and reducing your emissions now. 
So that's the first point. The second point is you have to do that baseline greenhouse gas emissions inventory. And it has to encompass scopes one through three and kind of the 95% of scope one and two emissions and 80% of scope three emissions using the protocols that we define, the WRI GHG protocol and the ISO 14064 process. And then so essentially those two membership categories are for silver level members. And then to move from silver level to gold level, you have to be at least 20% powered by on-site renewable energy. So solar, wind, biomass, but it has to be on-site. And then the fourth is you have to kind of continue to demonstrate that constant reduction. So year over year, you have to be making progress. And the other final point on this is as it relates to our net zero pledge and our emissions reductions, we do not recognize the purchase of external offsets. So IWCA is very adamant of the fact that we don't think that you can buy your way out of this. You actually have to be taking the direct mitigation efforts to decarbonize your own organizational footprint and that of your supply chain. I would just add that the inventory, the baseline inventory that wineries have to compile, it has to be verified by a third-party audit. That's important because it's the only document that IWCA is going to ask for. It's something objective. So we have a certification from the audit firm. And if the audit is passed, then we know it's everything is correct. It's the baseline for your transparency as well. Right. So just a question on the net zero pledge. Does it have to be offset by how it's created? Or let's say someone has 120% on-site renewable energy. Does that offset some of their other emissions in other places? I think we haven't studied that case in which we have a surplus of energy. I would say it doesn't count, but I don't know. It hasn't come up in the practical world because of the financial incentives on the renewable energy side. When building a renewable energy system, at least in California, you generally, you don't get paid for overgeneration. So I haven't seen any cases where companies are kind of intentionally overgenerating, at least using the kind of net energy metering that is prevalent in California. Everybody kind of tries to target the 90% offset is kind of generally what they're looking at. So we haven't come across that use cases. And I don't know if there's other areas where you could do more than you're actually using to offset other areas. One of the things that we are exploring, and I say exploring very tentatively because the science is not settled yet, but is kind of the idea of soil carbon sequestration. So agriculture, and there's been a lot of attention paid to this in recent years where people are starting to recognize that agriculture could potentially, if you farm correctly, and there's a term known as regenerative farming, regenerative agriculture, that's basically, it's all focused on building soil health, building total organic carbon and soil organic carbon. So you know, reducing tillage, spreading compost in your vineyards, integrating animals, livestock, planting cover crops, building up soil organic matter. And the theory is by doing that, you're creating the conditions to take atmospheric carbon dioxide, of which we have a lot of and more, more and more every day, and actually pulling that down through the plants, through photosynthesis and storing it in the soil. There's a school of thought that says, well, we think that agriculture producers can actually participate in reversing climate change. I think there's still a lot of science that needs to be settled about the permanence of doing that and storing it in the soil. We at IWCA and kind of the global carbon accounting community does not recognize soil carbon sequestration yet as being able to really sequester CO2 for the permanence requirements that are needed for carbon markets and things like that. 
But we do think that it's obviously it's a really important area of study, as is things like reforestation and other activities that have been proven in global carbon markets. So we do recognize, Joseph, I think, can speak to this more intelligently based on a lot of the work that the Taurus folks have done. But we do recognize that if a winery wants to plant trees on land that they own and get those essentially recognized, that does count towards sequestration and rolling back the clock on their emissions. Yes, we are entering into the topic of offsetting and we have to defer offsetting the carbon credits that you buy from insetting, like the compensation you can do yourself on your territory. This stands for reforestation in your own territory that you can control, that the reforestation project is going to be maintained in the long term, that the plants are going to survive and that there's going to be a certification also that the forest is there and the project is going to be not like a monoculture that there is a certain degree of assurance that the project is correctly done in terms of environmentally friendly purpose. And regarding regenerative agriculture, I think at least IWSA wineries have been working on that for a long time ago. We were not calling it regenerative. And now that it's called regenerative, we are somehow trying to merge all the innovation projects, all the R&D projects that we are putting in place in every winery and somehow compare the results, compare the methodology as well, which is important, and how do we calculate these results? It's tricky. There is no international consensus on how to approach regenerative agriculture, and therefore, until there is no science-based consensus, IWCA is not going to accept it as an insetic solution. But I believe we have to take advantage of all those different projects that are happening at the same time in different wineries from IWCA and share the knowledge, share the results, share it also with our scientists and hopefully come up with a good outcome. But the funny thing of all that is that even though there is no international consensus, the CO2 credits, the CO2 offsets are appearing since many years ago. So sometimes it's the carbon offset is appearing before the science-based consensus. And that's something we are not fan of. It sounds great that you guys are tracking all of these potential things and then sharing them across the IWCA. I'm curious on how many members are currently in the IWCA and do you have a target of by a certain date you want to get to X number? We had a target of reaching 20 members, 20 wineries in IWCA before COP26, which is the first and second week of November. To date, we are already 22. I believe that the work that you do to create an association, to make it visible, to explain what is it about, in a topic that climate change is trendy, but emissions measuring is not that trendy. It's a bit geek as well. It's really technical. It's very science-based. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to transmit and to pass by the message. But once you do all this gray work, then IWCA starts to work by itself. And now we're seeing like an exponential interest. So we didn't put a target for the end of the year, but we already reached the one we wanted to get by COP26. So hopefully the target that Mr. Torres had at the very beginning of 100 wineries, we're going to see it very, very soon. We've added 12 wineries in the last three months. So I think the pace of change is accelerating, which is exciting. The fact that we have wineries from different countries, this has happened organically. In every country of the world, there is at least one, two or three wineries that are interested in doing something more. And IWCA is gathering them. And from a winery's perspective, say they want to get involved How should they think of the costs associated with joining the IWCA? Obviously, they have to do all the legwork that you had mentioned in terms of auditing their greenhouse gas emissions through scope one through three. But outside of those kind of costs that are just in terms of getting the data, are there fees related to being in the IWCA? And how should they think about those? Organizationally, we have basically a sliding fee scale 
It's based on volume. So we have a flat fee for every winery of 4,000 euros a year, and then a sliding fee or a variable fee of one euro cent per case with a cap up to 600,000 cases. So the max kind of annual membership cap is 10,000 euros a year to participate. And then on the measurement and verification side, that is separate and every winery is essentially expected to handle that on their own. We are and have created a host of ways in which to kind of make that process more effective, more efficient, and more streamlined. So we earlier this year released a calculator, a GHG calculator for IWCA members and applicants that essentially allows most wineries to be able to kind of do the greenhouse gas emissions inventory collection and that piece on their own now using an Excel-based tool that conforms to these global standards, which then they can submit to their auditor and the auditors that we've recommended that we've worked with in the past. They've seen these now, and so it's streamlined that process. So our vision at IWCA is to continue to develop and kind of populate these tools and get them out so that it's easier and more effective and more streamlined to do that work so that we can then focus on the actual work at hand, the decarbonization work. That's great. Torres and Jackson family are pretty big wine companies in the global scheme. How does a smaller winery address climate change and be a part of the IWCA? The same way the big ones do. We have members at IWCA that range down to a few thousand cases. And for them, the driving factor of joining IWCA is really they want to participate in something larger. They want to amplify their voice. And I think in many ways, so many of these small companies, they're doing things because they firmly and strongly believe in them. And IWCA presents an opportunity for them to kind of exercise an outsized impact and help with scalability of some of these climate action initiatives. What are the next big initiatives for the IWCA? Well, we have a milestone, 21st October, which we are going to present the inaugural IWCA member report. That's going to be a very interesting compilation because there's going to be in it all the detail of IWCA, everything you want to know about IWCA, everything about the members, and also all the GAG inventories. We're going to make them public. We're going to hand in this data, this information that is standardized. You're going to see all members are calculating the same and the numbers are public. I believe this information is not yet in the sector available and we're going to provide with it. And as many wineries are joining IWCA, the more data we're going to have. I think that it's even interesting for scientists or researchers that want to know more about the wine sector and find the different analysis from our sector. And at the same time that we are presenting the report, the website that is going to be updated because right now it's just a landing page and we're going to have a formal web page. At the same time, because this is happening like simultaneously, we would like to kick off with the Friends of IWCA category. Any entity, even individuals that are very much aligned with IWCA, and we have already reached some of these incredible initiatives that could be partners of IWCA. And the science panel, we would like to have the backup of researchers from all around the globe, like, for instance, to talk about regenerative agriculture, carbon capture, things that are very technical and that we might need, or it would be interesting to have this opinion from people who know about it. And very, very finally, the initial stage of the working groups that we are going to create and that we've already made the first steps for that. So like to apply action to our initiative, we're going to focus on the hotspots 
to measure, to reduce, and even to better communicate for my WCA. So more or less, these are the working groups. The 21st of October is going to be an important date for all of us. Great. Well, we definitely want to thank you both for joining us. And as we wrap up every episode, we always ask our guests, what are you most excited about in the world of wine in the coming year? You mean in general or climate change related? In general. We've been stuck grounded for the last year and a half, two years. And I think that a lot of people have some pent up excitement that they're looking forward to as we start to get back to a little bit to normal. Like, What do you think is most exciting about the wine industry in the coming 12 months? I would say to recuperate the normal life, to be able to harvest normally, hopefully without masks and so on. But we are sustainable people. And what I am looking forward is the use of electrical tractors that I think next year is going to be widespread. The application of carbon capture techniques. We did it in our last harvest. We're doing it right now to capture the CO2 from fermentation. And that's something we're going to hear more about next year. And finally, I would say to have IWCA grown and being effective and making a difference in the wine sector. And Julian, what about yeah, you? I'd, I would echo all that. We've got some Ford F-150 Lightnings on order um, that we're expecting next spring. And they're going to the vineyard team, obviously. And those guys are lining up to get them. It's really exciting to see. I think IWCA really presents this incredible opportunity for us to have wine lead on climate for agriculture and for accelerating climate solutions across the economy. And we can communicate directly with our key trade partners, with our retailers with our consumers. It's an exciting time. Awesome. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate you joining us from your varying time zones and making this call happen. We learned a lot about how IWCA's mission and transparency level around the calculations and bottoms up numbers of the greenhouse gases. So much appreciated. Thank you both for your time. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.